Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee. He came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And we pointed out Sunday that Jesus will not return to the Galilee until after the resurrection. From this point forward, the beginning of Matthew 19, His eyes are set on Jerusalem. He's headed that way. And He won't be back until He's accomplished everything He came the first time to accomplish. Some Pharisees, verse 3, came to Jesus, testing Him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Well, we talked about, we covered the issue of divorce and marriage and remarriage on Sunday, and I'm sure it raised some questions. It may have actually raised more questions than it answered for you. I briefly want to follow up on this tonight with something the Lord's put on my heart this week. I, I shared this a bit on Sunday, I think even last Wednesday night, but I, I don't, I'm not sure there's been a harder teaching um, that I've had to bring before. And I'm, I'm grateful to the Lord that it's in His Word and that it's clear, but uh, I also really struggle with it because I know so many have gone through it, are going through it. I know so many have dealt with the pain of divorce. So many questions float in the air around remarriage, following a divorce. And when we look at what the Scriptures have to say, um, some may have thought I was a little too black and white on Sunday. And I'm not backing off of that. Uh, I said very clearly on Sunday, and I'll say it to you again tonight, this is what I'm seeing. It's the way I read it. I could be wrong, and so the burden is with you, the responsibility is with each of us to know what the Word says about all these things. And so all I ask you to do is to go yourself back to Scripture, test what you've heard, look at what it says, and ask the Lord for revelation and understanding. We don't always understand why God says what He says. There are many times I come to the Word and something will be pronounced, stated, something as absolute. And I'll look at it and I'll think, Lord, man, you could, you could save us a lot of trouble by just glossing over that or not including it at all. You know, a lot of the stigma that sits on the church today of being intolerant, Lord, some of that would just go away if, if Your Word was just a little more vague about certain social issues. I'd appreciate that, Lord, if you'd you know, water it down a bit. But He doesn't. He speaks the truth. He speaks the truth in love. He speaks the truth in grace. It's interesting to me, Jim was saying earlier, that uh, he heard both the first hour and the second hour on Sunday morning. He said, I, I don't know why, but I, I heard the word grace four times second hour, and I didn't hear it at all the first hour. And I was thinking, well, maybe I was just feeling more graceful. I don't know. <laughs> we don't always understand what the Lord is saying. We do know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the reason Jesus went to the cross was to give grace. We are saved by grace. This is not of yourselves. 
Grace through faith. So we believe in Him and we trust Him for His grace, for His forgiveness. But trust doesn't always depend on knowing and on understanding, does it? Children don't have to know where their parents are driving to trust that they're going to get them there. Children don't have to know why mom and dad are doing certain things. Oh, the older they get, they get the more they ask why, and the more they tend to rebel, as we all have, against the things that parents say and do. But at a young age, we don't have to know why. Get in the car. Where are we going? I'll tell you later. Okay. And then we go. So trust and faith is not always built on understanding. Sometimes the Lord says, I want you to do this not because I've explained it to you, but because I've asked you to do it. And you don't have to know why. I want to remind you, Sunday's teaching was not about yesterday. It's about today. And it's about tomorrow. Because as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I understand in the Scripture, yesterday was covered by grace. Well, thankfully, today and tomorrow are covered by grace as well. But the whole teaching and understanding when we deal with things like marriage and divorce is about looking at them in the truth and in the light. Maybe you've never heard the teaching before. Maybe you've never seen clearly what the Bible had to say about it before. And so you made decisions in the past that would be contrary to the Word of God. That was yesterday. And I am so thankful for His grace because without it, none of us would have a chance. Every time you come to difficult teaching in Scripture, understand, no, it is bathed in grace. That being said, I'll say it once again, as far as I can tell, the Bible makes no provision for remarriage following a divorce with the one exception of marital infidelity. And I've been over and over this. We talked about it again at our shepherds meeting last night. With the exception of marital infidelity, there there, there is no provision for it. And even, I'll say, even in the case of marital infidelity, I believe the Lord would counsel against a remarriage after divorce. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, To the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave. And Paul doesn't say why. He doesn't even add the caveat. He says, if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So the husband doesn't have to reconcile? No, no. The context is both here. Now that being said again, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, now we see in a mirror dimly. Why did God make that pronouncement? I don't know. Not specifically. I I can't tell you. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Now some might listen to our teaching on divorce and remarriage on Sunday and say, Rick, you're just being legalistic. You're taking everything too literally. Let me explain something to you about legalism and the problem of the Pharisees. Clinging to the Bible for the sake of self-righteousness is legalism. The desire to follow God's Word for the sake of loving God, that's not legalism, that's obedience. It is obedience to want to do everything. As Jesus says, not a single letter is going to disappear from the law until I've accomplished all things. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is love 
to want to know what His Word says and to follow it as closely as we possibly can. And when we've messed up, to repent, turn around, and get back on the road walking with the Lord. That's obedience. That's not legalism. Legalism is when I'm taking the Scripture to make myself look good. When I'm saying, well, I kept that one. Covered that one. I got this all right. Kind of like the rich young man. And we're going to see him in just a few minutes. Who kept all the commandments. He was a shining star. And he was empty relationally. But why would the Lord rob me of the joy of, of a second marriage? Just because the first one was messed up. Why should I be punished with singleness? Someone might ask. And there are actually some reasons for it. Jesus will give one in just a moment. But note this, again, God sees things we don't see. He knows things we don't know. And so He prescribes things that are the best in every situation in our lives. Isaiah 64, verse 3. Check this verse out. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him. And that's the problem. We don't wait for Him. We say, I know what you're saying in your Word, and I know what I want in my life, and I'm not waiting for you to show me why what your Word says is the best way to go. I'm going my way. We get into these wrestling matches with the Lord. I am absolutely convinced, gang, I'm absolutely convinced that whatever God prescribes, no matter how difficult it may seem in our lives, if we will follow it, it will be the absolute best. And you won't see it right now. But you'll see it later. One other thing never to forget, and we'll move on from this, whether you can make sense out of everything or not, whether you're married, single, divorced, remarried, whatever your current situation, let me remind you that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are His bride. You are betrothed to the Lord Jesus. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And then he ends the whole section by saying, Ephesians 5.32, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And that, that is the greater context of marriage. My marriage is, is a, a tiny little picture of the much greater and more wonderful context which is that I am a person who is betrothed to Jesus we are a people the bride of Christ betrothed to him and looking forward to anticipating the coming marriage feast of the Lamb we are in a courtship season with the Lord right now and what courtship used to be about before our culture came along and messed it all up, what courtship used to be about was getting to know one another in a safe environment, learning to trust one another so when the marriage happened you were ready to move forward in love and relationship. That's what our courtship with Jesus is about right now. We're betrothed to Him that we might learn to trust Him. To take Him at His word. Before the marriage feast happens. So when it happens, man, we are good to go. We are ready for the honeymoon. We are ready to walk with Jesus Moment by moment. Well, verse 10, Jesus finishes this tough teaching and the disciples say to him, and I love their question, well, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. (laughs) If it's this strict, if it's this stringent, if you're going to follow Shammai's school, rabbinical school of teaching, that, that it's that strict, why should a guy get married at all? I love the Lord's response. He doesn't say, well, boy, that's a good point. Maybe I ought to back off a bit. 
Why don't we soften that? Let's make it a little easier. No, he says, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. You know what Jesus just did? He went from difficult to more difficult. He didn't ease it up. He took them to a deeper place. They're saying, well, wait a minute. Then maybe a guy shouldn't get married at all. And I'm thinking they're probably elbowing each other. You know, Peter, you're married. You got the mother-in-law thing. You know what's going on there. Maybe you shouldn't have done that at all. Uh Ha-ha. And Jesus says, yeah. Yeah, you know what? Maybe you're right. There are those among you who maybe should never get married. What? What are you saying, Lord? He uses the word eunuch three times. Three different implications. The first implication is it's just someone who's born physically incapacitated to produce children. They're just not going to be able to do it. It's just a natural, that's the way it is. Then there's a person who's been medically altered. So he can't reproduce, and this would happen all the time in palaces of kings, and especially in the Orient, in Eastern civilization, that a man would be made a eunuch, literally, so that he could be trusted in the court of the women. And it didn't work. They made him a eunuch, but the men, there was a tendency there historically, they had all kinds of fun. The Ethiopian, in Acts chapter 8, verse 25 through 40, he was a eunuch. The Ethiopian that Philip was sent to and shared the gospel with. And here's a guy, an amazing guy, because he has a few moments with Philip. He, he invites Philip, the apostle, up into his chariot and, and off they go riding together. And he asks him to explain Isaiah to him. And by the time Philip's done explaining the Hebrew scripture, the Hebrew prophecy of Isaiah, this guy says, i got to accept Jesus. Obviously, Philip talked to him about being baptized because they came upon some water and the eunuch said, hey, let's go in. Like, can I get baptized right now? Sure, let's do it. He gets baptized. Immediately, Philip's gone and the eunuch is left by himself. This single man goes back to Ethiopia. And history and tradition tells us that the church grew like wildfire in Ethiopia, probably because of that one guy. Which brings us to the third reason for being a eunuch that Jesus points out. It is a challenge and it's a tough call. He says basically that a a eunuch, there are those who are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about a single person who remains voluntarily single in order to put all energy and focus and time into serving the Lord and His kingdom. Like the Ethiopian who didn't have to go back to a wife to care for. He didn't have children to care for. All he had was the Lord. So when he went back to Ethiopia, guess what? 100% of that man's time was spent spreading the gospel. Because he didn't have anyone to care about but himself. And when someone who has nothing to care about but themselves falls in love with the Lord and all their cares go that direction, guess what? You've got a powerful player in the kingdom. Being single in our culture is a stigma. Being single according to the Lord is a blessing and a gift. In fact, I think he would raise that up as one of the highest callings of man. Paul agreed with him. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you flip over there for a moment. While you're turning there, the interesting thing when Jesus says there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, some of the early church fathers got confused by that and actually did it. 
I'm not talking about remained voluntarily single. I mean, they physically made themselves into eunuchs. Origen was one of those. I think he kind of misunderstood the point. Took it a little bit too seriously. Which reminds me of the um, story, maybe you heard it about the monk who died and went to heaven. And when he got there, Hannah's already rolling her eyes. I love this. Can I just tell you, the best way to start my day have I shared this with you before? Is driving hand into school, and if I can get an eye roll and a head shake, that's what I'm looking for. I, I Seriously, I go out of my way to tell her lame jokes while we're driving to school and she's sleeping, and if I can just get her to go, <laughs> I have a good day. Anyway, so this, this monk dies and he goes to heaven. A voracious student of the Word, he immediately asks where the library is. And he goes into the library and begins pouring over the books. And now he has revelation. An understanding that he never had before. And he's seeing things he's never seen. He's so excited and having a great time. But after a few hours, the angelic librarian hears weeping coming out of the library basement. Goes down there. And there's this little monk. He's got a book open and he's just got tears pouring down his face. And the librarian says, What's the problem? And he goes, the word is not celibate. It's celebrate. <laughs> the idea of being a eunuch. <laughs> this, sorry. <laughs> it does not necessitate a physical inability. It can indicate a highly valued voluntary decision just to remain single. And that's the way the Apostle Paul was. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Talking about being single. He says, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. Jesus said not all men can accept this, only those to whom it has been given as a gift. Singleness. The willingness just to devote self 100% to the work of the kingdom. And now Paul says the same thing. It's a gift. It's a gift. This is not a bad thing. How can being single literally be a gift? Skip down to verse 32 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Check this out. Paul says, and here is one of the reasons, by the way, why remarriage may not be the best idea if you've been through a divorce. Watch this. I want you to be free from concern. The one who is married is concerned about the things unmarried, sorry, the one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided, and mine are. I am a married man. I have three children at home and three on the way. And my interests are divided. There's only so much I can do as a pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship because I have a wife and kids that honestly come first. They have to. Because if they don't and that falls apart, then I have nothing to give here. But my interests are divided. Not saying marriage is a bad thing. Please don't misunderstand. But my interests are divided. And Paul's saying it's not a bad thing to be free from that concern. He goes on and says, The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit. And teenage girls, that, that is a mark of incredible honor before the Lord. Isn't it amazing how our culture, our society has taken virginity and turned it into this shameful thing? How has that happened? To the Lord, that is the badge of honor. 
Because you can be concerned about the things of the Lord. She is holy both in body and spirit. The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure, watch this, underline it, highlight it, circle it, undistracted devotion to the Lord. And in that singleness is a fantastic gift. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. Again, married, unmarried, divorced, remarried, Jesus desires to be in first place in your life. And so, this is not just a word for a single person, but for all of us. He calls us to undistracted devotion. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. Because when we give Him that place in our lives, all other relationships are the better for it. You put Jesus first, your marriage is better. You put Jesus first, your parenting is better. You put Jesus first... As a son or a daughter, you're a better son or daughter. You put Jesus first in your friendships. They are better for it because He's first. And you're functioning out of relationship with Him. We'll go back to Matthew chapter 19. I don't know what the apostles were thinking, saying at that point. Were they rolling their eyes and shaking their heads like Hannah early in the morning? Or were they they confused by it? How can He say this? This is just He's really pushing the envelope here. Well then, verse 13, some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. We don't have time for this. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Mark tells us beautifully, he gathered them in his arms, pulled them up into his lap and laid his hands on them and blessed them. Showing great affection for the kids. And then, They went on from there. We saw this last week. One of the things that Jesus so loved about the kids, about little children, is they came to Him. They just came to Him. There's something inviting and attractive about Jesus to the kids. Verse 16. Well, someone came to Him and said, Teacher, what what good thing shall I do that I might obtain eternal life? And He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Did you catch the subtle statement of Jesus here? The subtle indication, what he's saying. He stops the guy, and Mark kind of illuminates this a little better. The guy doesn't just say, what good things should I do? Mark tells us actually what what he said more clearly is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Calling Jesus good. Good rabbi. And Jesus says, whoa. Why would you call me good? The only one who's good is God. Jesus was not saying He wasn't God. Jesus was implying He is. It was right for you to call me good because that's exactly who I am. Only God is good and my friend's God was right there. Verse 18. Well then He said to him, Which ones, which commandments do you want me to keep? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. 
When you look at these commandments that, that Jesus repeats to the man, they're all commandments for loving your neighbor. They're all the commandments of how you are to treat one another. He doesn't deal at all with any of the commandments, the first half of the commandments, which are loving God. And he even sums up the commandments he lists, he sums them up by saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now I know, and you may have heard this teaching before, that the one neighborly commandment that's left out is you shall not covet. And that was the rich young man's promise. He was covetous, and so that's what he really needed to do. And so, of course, Jesus said, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. But that leaves out the last few words of Jesus, and come follow me. You know what was lacking with this guy? What was lacking is he was keeping all the commandments to to his fellow man, but he had no relationship with his father. No relationship. No love for God. It was all empty-headed religion. We were talking about that this morning, Hannah and I. There are people who go to church, and they get involved in social functions, and they serve, and they do things. But when you sit down and talk about Jesus... There's nothing there. This guy comes to Jesus saying, how do I inherit eternal life? I've done all the things I'm supposed to do. And Jesus gives him two things to do. Get rid of your stuff. Because right now, buddy, your stuff has a hold on you. And follow me. The love God part of the commandments. It was lacking so much. And this young man's sad departure from Jesus has been played out again and again and again throughout history by people who are not willing to let go of their stuff, of the things that they owned. Read on, Matthew 19.23. Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this... They were very astonished and said, Who then can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What are we talking about here? Jesus is calling for, once again, undistracted devotion to the Lord. And this man's stuff was his distraction, is yours, is mine. Does our stuff distract us? Is it yet one more thing that we are married to that divides our interests so that we are not as effective for Jesus as we could be because we're so worried about our stuff? Why is it that he says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because there's a lot of money to manage. And the more money you have to manage, the more the money begins to manage you. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And the word wealth there, some of your Bibles just translate it directly. Mammon. Mammonus. Which was the Chaldean personification of wealth. It was the god of wealth. Mammonus. Worshipped by the Babylonians. As an actual god. Mammonus. The Spanish word for Mammonus is interesting. It's anybody who irritates you. <laughs> thought I'd throw that in. I don't know what that has to do with anything except for the fact that Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil, with which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And I've watched it happen time and time again. People who are focused on and concerned with things, material things and money, 
who may come to the Lord wonderfully, but then flame out because it's just too much to ask to let go of the stuff. The disciples were amazed by Jesus' teaching because prosperity in their day was a sure sign of blessing. If you were prosperous, you were righteous. It's just the way they believed it worked. And if you were poor, you must be unrighteous because obviously God would bless you if you were righteous. Jesus comes in and throws a whole wrench into the works. The most poor man ever to live on the face of the planet. The the homeless Savior. They're following Him and they're going, yeah, but that flies in the face of this whole idea that that blessings and riches indicates righteousness. 1 Corinthians 9.10 tells us you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, I believe that may be 2 Corinthians 9.10. Check that out. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. He is the perfect picture of righteousness and He didn't own a thing. As we pointed out, I believe it was last week, maybe the week before, even when it came to paying the temple tax, Jesus didn't even have a drachma in his pocket to cough up. Had to get it out of a fish. Last spring, I got tagged by myocarditis. You may remember that story I shared with you and got run to the emergency room and thinking, thinking I was having a heart attack and not sure what was going on. And They hauled me in and they hooked me up to a heart monitor to check the activity of my heart. And it was interesting. All night long I sat there and watched that thing. You know? And I was glad that it kept doing that. You know? I kept thinking, man, what would I do if it just... You know? I was thinking about this because money in a way is a heart monitor. It functions as a type of heart monitor. It reveals the condition of our hearts, at least in a couple of ways. My heart health is revealed by my financial holdings. I've talked a little bit about this before, but if you want to check your health, the health of your heart, spiritually with Jesus, then check this question. Do you have a hold on your money, or does your money have a hold on you? One of the best tests of where you're at with the Lord is where you're at with money. And it doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little. What matters is how you're concerned about it. I think it's funny that we have two names for places where people invest their money, stocks and bonds. That's perfect. Hands and feet in the stocks, bound to our money financially. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul told Timothy, and so I'm telling you, he said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And you might say, well, Rick, I'm not rich, so don't talk to me about it. You live in America, you're rich. Okay? We have more in this country than any country in the history of the world. We are filthy rich and we don't even know it. And so this verse applies to every single one of us here. Instruct them, he goes on, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The future life that Paul talks about. It's not earthly retirement, it's eternal redemption. That's where he's headed with all this. My heart health is revealed by my financial holdings. My heart health is also revealed by my financial offerings. Don't raise your hand. I'm going to ask you the question. Are you a faithful, generous giver to the Lord? Are you? Week in, week out, do you give faithfully and generously to the Lord? 
Or do you tithe? Rick, I, I'm living on a shoestring as it is. I don't make much. What I give wouldn't make any difference. It would for you. It would for you. You might say, well, how can you ask about generous, faithful giving in financial times like these? Hey, we need to ask that question more now than ever. When money is tight, that is the time to tithe. When it's difficult to do so, that's the time to step out in faith and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to accept your promise that you said if I seek first the kingdom and all your righteousness, that all these other things will be provided as well. I'm going to believe you, Jesus, when you said, Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I'm going to put my treasure with you, Lord. It is a heart monitor. I can say this freely because as you all know, I have no idea, Les has no idea, none of the shepherds have any idea, say possibly one who has to deal with finances, none of us know when anybody gives. It's not a matter of getting more money in this fellowship. It is a matter of the heart. My giving is an absolute measure of where my heart is with the Lord. And you cannot be a generous giver without engaging your heart with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Did you catch that? Why does God bless? So that we can store it up? No. He blesses so that we can bless. He gives more so that we can give more. Paul says you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. God blesses us to make us more liberal in our giving and in our sharing with other people. Verse 27. Then Peter said to him, in response to all this, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? We don't even have anything here, man. We've given it all up. What do we get? (laughs) And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration or restoration, either word fits there, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit upon His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And gang, that is fantastic. That refers specifically to the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign that Jesus Christ will set up on this earth. And the twelve apostles will be put on twelve thrones as twelve rulers over the twelve tribes of Israel. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James the Lesser, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealous, and not Judas, I think Paul, will be among the twelve. Revelation 21.14 tells us the wall of the city, that is New Jerusalem, and this is even beyond, after the Millennial Kingdom, that wall had twelve foundation stones, and on each one of them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. What an honor! For these 12 guys. They would all live persecuted, difficult, painful lives. To a man. And with the exception of the Apostle John, everyone martyred for their faith. And the Apostle John, well, you may remember the story, they boiled him in oil and that didn't kill him, so they stuck him on the island of Patmos. Every one of them would pay dearly in this life. Boy. You know, it strikes me, we talk about the divorce and remarriage issue, and we say, well, man, but I, I want to have this in my life. I, I, I have these plans for me, and where I want to go, and what I want to do. Instead of the opposite of that, which is, Lord, what can I give up for you? What am I willing to let go for you? How far am I, 
I will do anything for you. Peter said that. Lord, we'll do anything. Well, I'll die before I let them put a hand on you. And of course, he ran away like a frightened coward. But eventually he did die for his Lord Jesus, didn't he? Undistracted devotion to the Lord. That, that's, that's where we're headed. That's what we're talking about here. Now, things get back here in a moment to uh, James and John's mama. And a big argument is going to ensue over the seating arrangements of these twelve thrones. But before we get there, verse 29, Jesus goes on and says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And this is one of those do I believe it promises. Jesus says, If you will give up for me whatever you give up for me, you're going to get far more. It will be far greater. You give up that which you want the most, and I guarantee you it will be better and greater far beyond your wildest dreams. Not only in the life to come, but in this life. Now that's His words. Do you believe that promise? Do we accept that? Do I really believe He's going to meet every need for relationship? Every need for family? Even for housing? Whatever I give up for the sake of the kingdom... And again, Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus sums it up by saying the first will be last, and the last first. It was the one verse that gave me great solace when I was stuck at the back of the lunch line in elementary school. Well, at least I'll be first in heaven. First to get my little thing of milk and my donuts, you know, whatever. When (laughs) When I was the last one picked at kickball... Hell, first will be last. I said that one time, and I remember my little friends looking at me like, what are you, an idiot? <laughs> no, the first will be first. But Jesus says the first will be last, and the last first in the kingdom. Throughout your life, have you ever thought of that this phrase seems completely weird, but it fits any time life seems unfair or inequitable? If it doesn't seem to be going your way, you can kind of nestle back into this phrase, hey, but the first... Or last, and the last will be first. I may not be at the front of the line right now, but in the kingdom, I'm going to have a better position. Well, Jesus means far more than where you stand. Look at verse, uh, oh, verse 1 of chapter 20 going on. He tells a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, which was a day's wage, the denarius, he sent them into the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, this will be nine o'clock, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I'll give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour, so it's noon now, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and he did the same thing. He keeps hiring guys as the day goes on. And about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Well, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group, the 5 o'clockers, to the first group that came early morning, 6 a.m., And so, when those hired about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock came, each one received a denarius, an entire day's wage. I want to be in that group. 
Just reading the parable. That's the group I want to be. Work one hour, get paid for a day. I'm, I'm down with that. Well, when those hired first came, they thought they'd receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal with us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So, the last will be first. And the first, last. It's one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. And in this, Jesus addresses at least three important issues. The first thing we see here is that Jesus lifts up the Father's generosity. This is the way God thinks. You may be the last person on earth to be saved, and guess what? Your salvation is as rich and full and wonderful as the person who was saved as a young person and lived their whole life in Jesus. Oh, you will have missed a lifetime, but you will have gained an eternity just like me. Just like anybody else. Now, Spencer and I, we've talked about this. I grew up in church and been all my life and I've kind of had the whole thing. Spence comes to the Lord later in life. I mean, not too much later, but a little later. <laughs> and we've had the conversation and, and I'm, I'm quoting Spencer just saying, I just wish I had known this years ago and I could have been walking with the Lord all those years. But guess what? His standing and my standing in the kingdom, the same. We both have salvation, man. We both have heaven. We both get the denarius. And I could say, that's not fair. I've been working at this my whole life. The Father's generosity, gang. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3.27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from above. You get something today, it came from God. You have lunch, God blessed you. James 1.7 tells us every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. We sang that earlier. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Oh, and by the way, if the health of my heart is indicated by my holdings and by my giving, it's maintained by my thanksgiving. Heart health is maintained by thanksgiving. The more thankful I am, the better my heart before the Lord. Which is why... Paul wrote in Colossians 4 to devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. Pray a lot, but be sure that your prayer is bathed in thankfulness. It's good for the heart. So Jesus, He lifts up the Father's generosity, but He also puts down the followers' jealousy. He knocks me right off that block where I might stand up and compare myself to others and say, man... Why does some latecomer, some procrastinator, some flake get the same wages as the rest of us? I've been toiling in the church for 25, 30 years. I've, 44 years of my life, I've been working in the church. And you know, to someone who would say that, I think we should say, maybe you should get out of the church and go take Jesus to the world. If your 44 years in the church has so embittered you, maybe it's time to go share the Lord. Whatever one believer or another has or is given, there is no place in God's family or in God's workforce for jealousy, envy, or strife. For one Christian to look at another and say, why does he get that? Why does he live in that house? Why do they get to drive that car? There's no place for it. 
You want to know why he gets that house? Because God gave him that house. You know why she drives that car? Because the Lord said, I want her to have that car. Oh, so the Lord wanted me to have this beater? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we have what the Lord has given us and there is no place for jealousy because the Father in His generosity He gives as He sees fit to who He wants, when He wants, how He wants and He has every right because it's all His to give. For you and for me, Paul would write Philippians 2.3 with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus and then Paul goes on to discuss and describe Jesus' willingness to die. That's the attitude we are to have. Jesus lifts up the Father's generosity. He puts down the follower's jealousy. And number three, Jesus calls out the foot-dragger's responsibility. I love this. What is it that He said to these guys back in verse 7? They're standing around. Said, Why have you been standing around idle all day long? Well, no one hired us. And Jesus says, Go to work. You go to the field too, man. You see, it doesn't matter if you come to Christ early in life or later in life. It doesn't matter if you have five minutes before Jesus is about to rapture the church. You have the same responsibility as everybody else in the kingdom, and that is go to the field. Go tell people about Jesus. Let them know. Share the word. You go into the vineyard too. Jesus says nothing here about sending these workers back to headquarters for training. Now, I take seriously the responsibility as a pastor to train and to equip. But you know what? The days are waning fast. We are running out of training time. So at a minimum, while we are training for the kingdom, we need to be working for the kingdom too. We need to be in the field. Jesus said, Behold, John 4.35, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for the harvest. Already he who weeps is, reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. There is a sense of urgency here. At the fifth hour, five o'clock, the eleventh hour, Jesus finds these guys, or the, the landowner, and says, "What are you doing? Why are you idle? There's still one hour left in the day. Go to work. Get busy. Get involved." I believe the reason Jesus spoke of the last days so often is so that we would go to the vineyard and be busy in the work of the kingdom. Well, going on from here, verse 17. Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem and He took twelve disciples aside by themselves. The twelve. And on the way He said to them, watch this, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn Him to death. They will hand Him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify Him. And on the third day He will be raised up. And I told you He would do this. The closer to the cross Jesus gets, the more explicit He gets with describing to His apostles exactly what will happen. Two quick things to catch in these couple of verses. The first thing is note the precision of Jesus' prophecy. This is not like before. You'll be given the sign of Jonah who is in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What does that mean? Well, you'll find out. You'll understand when time goes on. This is not Jesus even saying, we're going to go to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be killed. Now He says specifically... And it's a lot to take in. He says there's going to be subversion. There's going to be subversion here. When we get there, there's going to be a betrayal. The word in verse 18 that's translated delivered is literally betrayal. 
He says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the chief priests. Who would do that while he's standing right there? Judas would do that. There's subversion. There is condemnation. He says he's going to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they're going to condemn him to death. And Jesus would go through six illegal trials on that Thursday night before he was crucified on Friday morning. Six trials dragged back and forth all over Jerusalem illegally condemned in each and every one. Subversion, condemnation, extradition. For the first time, we recognize the Gentiles are going to have a hand in this. The Romans are now implicated. The chief priests and scribes, they'll condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. So this is getting to be a bigger situation that Jesus is describing, extradition. And then derision and affliction. He says there's going to be mocking. He even predicts specifically scourging. He is so specific in this that everything that happens to him once they get to Jerusalem is exactly as he said. The precision is amazing. Subversion, condemnation, extradition, derision, affliction, and crucifixion. Well, the critic might point out the only reason Jesus knew all this was because he read Isaiah 53, so he knew what was coming. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which makes the whole thing even more fantastic because it was talked about 750 years before it happened. Rick, you always bring up the 750 years. I know, because it blows my mind. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, by His scourging, we are healed. And Jesus told the apostles as they were walking, as they were heading to Jerusalem, exactly, precisely, point by point, what would happen when they got there. The precision of the prophecy. But notice this for the first time. Well, not for the first time. Notice this, the prominence, the prominence of the resurrection. Jesus never once mentions His death or His crucifixion without also mentioning the resurrection. It's always part of the equation. Because crucifixion without resurrection where Jesus is concerned is pointless. It's powerless. But because of His resurrection, life conquered death. Because He rose, we win. Let me just read this to you quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 19. Paul wrote, If we had hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus only talked about, only prepared the apostles for the crucifixion, and then died, and that was the end, we would not be sitting here tonight. We certainly wouldn't be studying Scripture. We would be a pitiful lot if all we had to hang our hope on was the crucifixion. But, now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. 
And then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When He has abolished and all rule and all authority and power. And watch this, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. In other words, the church isn't going to do it. Jesus is. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The resurrection. It is always there, the central point, as Jesus even talked about the sacrifice, the resurrection would immediately follow. Well, the, the apostles, they're unsettled by this prophecy. They're upset by it, as they always are. But the royal seating chart is still on their mind. And so James and John's mama steps in to speak a word with the Lord. Verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of Him. And He said to her, What do you wish? I really think He said it that way. What do you wish? And she said to Him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine, my boys, may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, so James and John are standing right there, letting mom do the dirty work. They say, we are able. And these are men's men. They had to have mom ask for them. We're able. But he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. The words of Jesus' imminent crucifixion are still hanging in the air. When the mother of these boys comes on behalf of their sons, and what does she want for them? She wants crowns. I want them on their thrones, and I want them on your right and the left. Prominent places, I want crowns. What did Jesus just describe? The cross. And what James and John and their mama did not understand is the cross always comes first. It's cross before crown. The mama's boys want the crowns. So Jesus takes them back to the cross. My cup you shall drink. Are you willing to drink my cup? Yeah, we'll drink with you. You're going to drink my cup. The rest of the apostles are steamed. Probably because they didn't get to Jesus first. So it's time for another servant's pup talk. After hearing this, verse 24, the ten become indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Mark writes that Jesus said, Not so with you. My followers are not to be about position, not to be about authority, not to be about lording it over each other. This is not the way it's to be with you. This is an emphatic statement by Jesus. Not so with you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life a ransom for many. It's as if Jesus is saying... You guys have been with me three years now. Don't you get it yet? This is not about position. It's not about who gets to sit where. It's not about seating charts and thrones. It is about service to the last breath of your life. And the apostles all would experience the cross first and then the crown. Cross first. Crown second. It's a good rule of thumb. It's a good thing to think in our heads. Cross first. 
I want the crown now. You're not going to get the crown now. But I'd like the crown now. You're not going to get the crown now. You're going to get the cross now. And for some, it's going to be excruciating. As Rush shared years ago, and I've never forgotten this, the word excruciating comes from crucifixion. They couldn't even come up, they had to come up with a new word to describe how painful it was. So they come up with excruciating from the cross. And some lives are going to be like that. Cross first, crown second. James and John would experience cross first. James was the first apostle to die. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And as we talked about earlier, tradition tells us John was boiled in oil and stuck on the island of Patmos and left there to rot. Patmos, it's, a, it's an island which today is considered one of the Dodecanese Islands in the Aegean Archipelago. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I, John, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. So I looked it up. www.patmos.gr as a Greek island. Comes up with a beautiful picture. This Greek island, lush and green, surrounded by sparkling green waters and the phrase, Patmos. Live it. Explore it. Love it. <laughs> and I don't think John did. The website boasts about this beautiful Greek island, the sparkling waters, lush palms, powdery sand trees, colorful pebbles that, that line the shoreline. My parents just got back, actually, spending all of my inheritance on a, on a trip to, to the Greek islands. And <laughs> Where's my heart? Where's my heart? Okay. And my mom was telling me about Patmos because they went to Patmos. And she was so excited. Rick, we saw the grotto where John received the revelation. I didn't want to bust her bubble, you know. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sure that was the exact place, Mom. But she said the island was beautiful. The trees and the, the, the sea. I always thought it was this harsh, desolated rock where John just sat out there and burned and oh, it was painful and difficult for him. But no, it was lovely. It was a lovely island. John didn't have it so bad. You know... Loneliness even surrounded by beauty is still desolate. Abandonment, no matter how wonderful the surroundings are, is still abandonment. It's still a difficult place to be. Have you been there? Have you been in life where everything appears perfect, but on the inside you are empty and alone? Someone looks from the outside, you got the job, you got the house, you got the car... You know, you're part of a church fellowship, man. Fellowship! i got people all around me. And you sit there and you feel abjectly alone. If you're in that place, if you've ever been that place, or if you ever are in that place, I encourage you to do what John did. When on Patmos, Revelation 1.10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit. Completely alone. Completely desolate on this island, I was in the Spirit. And I heard the loud voice behind me like the sound of the trumpet. Why did John receive the revelation? Because he was in the Spirit. He was not alone, though he was alone. He was certainly not lonely because he was in the Spirit. John was not in a cathedral or a church or a barn. He wasn't in a decorated grotto that tourists from around the world for centuries would come visit. John was in the Spirit. Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jude says, pray in the spirit. 
The number one answer to loneliness in our world. Number one, be in the Spirit. You be with the Lord. That's how John dealt with desolation, even surrounded by the beauty of the Greek Isles. Be in the Spirit. Jesus had said to James and John, Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And then Jesus says, My cup you will drink. Listen. It was the drinking of that cup, a lifetime of persecution and pain. It was in the drinking of that cup that landed John in the presence of the Spirit on Patmos. John was able to be in the Spirit because all that pain left him with nobody but Jesus. Nowhere else to go. And rather than rail at the Lord in our lives and say, how could you allow this to happen? Why do I have to? Oh, it's not fair. Instead, let the pain, let loneliness, let heartache, and let sorrow drive you into the arms of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to drink His cup? John drank it, a cup of persecution, and ended up wrapped in the Spirit. If you would request a seat near the Lord, know this, it's not a plush cushion that He offers, it's not a lazy boy, it's a painful drink, but it's worth every drop. I don't know who's going to sit at the right or the left, but it's an interesting question. It'll be a surprise. It's one of the many surprises we get to look forward to when Jesus comes. Who's it going to be? Peter and Paul? I kind of would float their names. I think maybe that'd be a good, you know, maybe Mary, Peter, Paul, and Mary, so we could have some folk music. I don't know, but who's going to be sitting there? We don't know. <laughs> I think we're going to have a lot of surprises in heaven. A lot of surprises. The giving of rewards, it's going to be an amazing time. Remember, Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus also said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you'll have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. I have a feeling that in that day, the most visible, most obvious, most upfront leaders in the church are going to be seated in the back row and handed binoculars. And the people receiving the big honking crowns, the most amazing rewards are the people that we don't even notice. The unseen servants. The quiet ministers. Those among us who are doing the jobs that nobody else wants to do, I think we're going to sit there and, and there are going to be gasps in the crowd. <gasps> Look at what God's giving him. She, she didn't, I didn't even know she was, I mean I knew she was there and I saw her sweep in the church that one. But look at what she's getting. And people are going to be amazed. Because what impresses Jesus is the heart of quiet service. It's not the upfront stuff. It's the behind the scenes. What does that mean for you, Rick? Well, as long as I have a seat in my father's house, I'll be thrilled. Verse 29. As they were leaving Jericho... A large crowd. And by the way, Jericho is getting real close now. Real close to Jerusalem. It's just outside. So we're leaving Jericho. A large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and he called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. 
moved with compassion as Jesus so often was. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and they followed Him. Now the parallel accounts of this last story in our chapter tonight, in Mark and Luke, they only mention one beggar, not two. Matthew's the only one who tells us there there are actually two guys there. Mark even gives his name, Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus, Barty, was there on the side of the road. But one of two blind men, Matthew tells us. Why does Matthew tell us two when the other two Gospels tell us only one? Is that a contradiction? Hardly. According to the wording in Mark and Luke, it's apparent that Bartimaeus, either Bartimaeus himself or his father, because his father is named, was probably prominent there in Jericho. Maybe his father was a governor in Jericho or a higher up that people all knew him and they knew that he had a blind son, that kid Bartimaeus. So... So Mark and Luke, they focus just on Bartimaeus. They don't mention the other guy. Why does Matthew mention the other guy? Well, remember Matthew is writing from a Jewish and Messianic perspective. And according to Jewish law, the minimum number of witnesses for a valid testimony was two. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And Matthew wanted to make sure that this healing of these two blind men was confirmed. So we got two witnesses saying, yes, He healed us, both of us. Matthew focuses in on that. These two blind men, gang, are yet two more witnesses who saw their way clear to see something that the Pharisees were blind to. These two blind men, they did what the rich young man couldn't do. They saw what the apostles were struggling to see. In fact, these two blind men did the same thing that the children did. They came after Jesus. Somehow they heard Jesus was passing through Jericho and they cried out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. I love that in verse 31 when the crowd says, Hey, pipe down, they crank it up. They're not embarrassed by their faith that this man is the answer. And so when the world around them said, shh, knock it off, you're embarrassing us, they yelled all the more loudly, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And they could not be shut up. And Jesus, Jesus turns to him. He hears him. He's impressed by this. And He has compassion for them. I want to end with this. The world around you may try to silence your prayers. People, even sometimes church people, may say, let's not talk about Jesus right now. It's a little embarrassing. I'll tell you what, when the world says pipe down, crank it up. You get louder. When the world says you can't talk about this, shout about it. From the highest mountains, shout the truth. Talk about Jesus. Cry out all the more in what we've been talking about all night long, and that is undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's what we're called to. Amen? Let's bow together. Father, we, we've covered some territory. I ask that You make Your words sink in deep tonight. May we consider these words of truth. Father, would You show us what it really means to drink Your cup. And when the time comes that we are called upon to drink the cup, to 
come to the cross before the crown, that, Lord, we would drink willingly. I pray, Father, that we would accept Your will over and above our own. Even when what we want goes head to head with what You ask. May we love You so much that we will obey every one of Your commandments. That we would not water down the Word. That we would not look for loopholes and ways out, but we would receive Your Word with joy and freedom and all the love and grace with which it was given. Knowing and trusting that our Father has nothing but the best in mind for His children. Help us to walk in these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.